0: You're listening to a sermon from Mission City Fellowship of San Antonio, Texas. Mission City Fellowship exists to make and mature disciples of Jesus Christ, who live all of life for the glory of God and proclaim Christ for the joy of all people. Open your Bibles to John chapter 8. John chapter 8. Before we dig into the Word here, I think it's important to point something out with the first 11 verses of chapter 8. These verses are somewhat debated. When you look at your Bible, there most likely will be brackets surrounding the first 11 verses. And there is a footnote that says, some manuscripts do not include these verses. What that's referring to is that as our Bibles are being put together using thousands upon thousands of manuscripts, ancient, old, papyrus manuscripts, as they're being put together, compiled and compared to eventually give us our Bibles, if, if you remember a few weeks ago, or I guess a few months ago, in John chapter 5, we, we already kind of talked about this, so I don't think I have to go deep into it once again like I did that Sunday, but I think it's worth mentioning, that, that our Bibles are telling us when it says, the earliest manuscripts do not include these these first eleven verses. Um, our Bibles are saying those very early manuscripts don't show this, but later manuscripts do have them. And so, hence, then they've decided to include it in our Bibles. But what I love is that our Bibles are just honest with us. They're honest in telling us it shouldn't bring doubt or question. Rather, it brings honesty to say, "Hey." These particular verses aren't found in the oldest manuscripts we have, but they are found in manuscripts, and so we're including them. And so what that means is, in other words, they're they're saying, hey, we question, we're not exactly sure 100% that John originally wrote these particular verses. But with all the manuscripts we do have, it's still considered historically accurate and aligns with the truth of the gospel of John and the truth of, this, of the rest of this passage, which we'll see in just a moment. And so then, it's still included in our Bibles. Um, it reminds me of, of what John says at the very end of his gospel, literally the last verse of his gospel. He says, were every one of them, meaning the, every one of the things Jesus did, were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Jesus did a lot, a lot of things. And so it doesn't mean that we're consist, or constantly adding to the scripture. We don't believe in that. We, we believe in the closing of the canon of scripture, and we hold, we believe that what we hold in our hands is God-breathed and is profitable to us and uh, for our growth and our good and our salvation in Christ. And so, hence then, if I could sum all that up, I am going to be preaching through verses 1 through 30. So I'm including these first 11 verses in the rest of those verses because I do think they still illustrate and affirm the truth that, we've, that we have here. Okay? All right, so with that... Follow along with me as I read God's word, beginning in chapter eight, verse one, or, or chapter seven, verse fifty-three, all the way through chapter eight, verse thirty. It's a long one, so let me read it and bear with me. Stay awake, fight for being awake. Hear the word of the Lord. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman, or to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before Him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, You are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going. But you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not alone I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. Now just pause for a second, because we're not going to hit much on this in the sermon. When Jesus says, I do not judge, he's saying, I don't judge like you judge. I don't judge, and, and we'll, we'll talk about how they judge in just a moment. In your law, so verse 17, In your law, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, Therefore, where is your Father? Jesus answered, You know neither me nor my Father. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple. But no one arrested him, because his hour had not yet come. Verse 21, So he said to them again, I am going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, Will he kill himself, since he says, Where I am going, you cannot come? He said to them, You are from below, and I from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, unless, for unless you believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. So they said to Him, Who are you? Jesus said to them, Just what I have been ca- telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge. But He who sent me is true. And I declare to the world what I have heard from Him. Many believed in him. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you and we ask, would you shine your light upon your word today? And Lord, would you in doing so, would you shine your light upon our minds and hearts? We cannot see unless you shine brightly for us. We are left in the dark unless you pierce the darkness. Oh, Lord, would you do such a work this morning? Awaken us, enliven us, Lord. Help us see Jesus more clearly. Oh, Lord, would you illuminate Jesus to our hearts and minds? And would our hearts respond with gladness? We love you. We love you, Lord. Thank you for loving us. Would you be exalted now? In Jesus' name we pray. And the church said, amen. Amen. These verses are taking place as one of the most celebrated events of the year in Jerusalem is coming to a close, the Feast of Booths, or also, maybe some of your Bibles say the Feast of Tabernacles, they're the same thing. We heard a couple weeks ago how the Feast of Booths was one of the most joy-filled, celebratory feasts of all the feast We learned how it was a time when they celebrated God's past presence among them, and His providing and preserving them, and then looking ahead to to His future presence and provision and and preserving of them. They were looking at how God in the previous year had been so faithful, but, but more than that, they were looking further back to where God was with His people in the desert wilderness of the Exodus. And so in this feast, food, water... And light were huge parts of the Feast of Booze in this celebration. In the, the last chapters, Jesus has been showing us how He fulfills each one of these. So at the feast, they celebrated how God had provided bread from heaven for His people in the wilderness. And even before that feast, Jesus had shown us how He was the bread now provided for God's people that they must come and eat of and find life in. At the feast, there was a water ceremony that we heard about a couple weeks ago that took place remembering God's life-giving and life-sustaining provision of water in the wilderness. And we saw how at this feast, Jesus stood up and spoke out, or actually cried out and said, If anyone thirsts, come to me and drink. Jesus is the fulfillment of all these things. And also... We need to know this about the Feast of Booths. I hinted at this a few weeks ago. So along with the water ceremony, now in this week, here's here's what we see. There was a light ceremony that this passage is connecting itself to. There was a light ceremony as part of the Feast of Booths. So in the outer temple court, there were four massive, what are called candelabras, huge candles, essentially 75 feet high And at this celebration, at nighttime, they would have the younger priests would climb up. And it's interesting to me when you read the Jewish law and history, how they they emphasize that. The the younger priests were the ones to to climb up. And they would climb up these these huge ladders. And they would climb up to these, these candelabras. And they would fill them with oil. And then they would light them. And throughout the night, there were these massive, massive lights, these candles that were lit. And throughout the night, they shone about over all of Jerusalem. And as the night went on, it, that wasn't the last part of the light ceremony. What they did is they would have men of, they, they called men of piety. So men who were supposed to be godly men, that they would light their, these torches and they would dance around and sing. And all the people would be left with just singing and celebrating God throughout the night, all night till the morning came, until those candles, in a sense, would cease burning, and what was left were these clouds. And so this was very significant. It was this portrayal of God in the wilderness with His people, leading them by a pillar of light and a pillar of cloud. God's presence and provision and leading them, guarding them, keeping them, That was the light ceremony of the Feast of Booze. And so here is Jesus. A day after the light ceremony has ceased. And it's in the midst of this that he says in verse 12. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me. Oh, I love just wonderful. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus is the pillar light of life. Come into a darkened world, shining upon the heart's of people, and we are to believe and follow the light of Jesus, entrusting ourselves to His care entrusting trusting ourselves to His leadership in the wilderness of this world. The past several weeks in the Gospel of John, there have there's been this consistent or constant back and forth between the Jewish. Leaders and Jesus, as they deny his claims of being the Son of God, the Father, and being a, a, of deity, then, and in, in today's passage, we see some of that over again, but I think, here's what I think, and the reason why I, I kind of beeline it to the light portion of this, is I, I, I think that's the emphasis of these verses, captured all together, the emphasis is found right in the middle, in verse 12, Jesus is the light of life. And we're to see the contrast of those who come to the light and those who flee the light. Those who receive the light and those who reject the light. That's what's being lived out here for us to see. Jesus is this pillar light for us to follow in the wilderness. Provision of God. God Himself with His people. We're to come and follow Him. But we see those who reject Him. So here's the two two points for today that we see. If you're taking notes, I think points serve. And so if you're taking notes, I think notes serve. I take notes. Hopefully it serves you. Here's what we see. Jesus is the light that exposes what's hidden in the darkness. And Jesus is the light that leads us out of the darkness. First, Jesus, the light that exposes what's hidden in the darkness. Jesus has returned to the temple where he had just caused a stir at the Feast of Booze the previous day by announcing he is the source of God's living water. And people are now coming to Jesus and listening to Jesus teach. But not everyone is a fan of Jesus. And we know that, right? Not everyone is a fan of Jesus. Mixed in the crowd are religious leaders, men who are supposed to... Oh, hear this. These are religious leaders. They are men who are supposed to be upright and virtuous. They're supposed to do good to other people. They themselves are supposed to be the ones who are leading the charge, not both in truth and in expressing and living out the heart of God. That's who these men are supposed to be, men of truth and the heart of God. These religious leaders are are mixed in the group. Yet we've already heard what's in their hearts. And what's in their hearts is this hidden hate for Jesus. Within them, these men are supposed to be God's men. But within them, they hate God Himself. God who has come in the human flesh. There is this hidden hate for Him. Which goes to show us, it goes to show us you can follow rules. You can do religious types of things on the outside. You may even have a degree in studying the word of God or a position in a church gathering. Yet not even know God himself. Oh my. Maybe. Playing the religious game while actually hidden deep within the heart, denying God. We'll see in these passages, no one can escape the light that exposes the hidden darkness of our hearts. No one can escape it. Nobody escapes. No one can can hide jesus knows our secret motives he knows when we're playing the religious game he knows when we show up to worship service but the reality is we're worshiping our own passions and pleasures and desires and this truth and i've said this before this truth is incredibly comforting and incredibly convicting it's comforting because he genuinely knows our hearts First John says, when your heart condemns you, God is greater than your heart. He knows you. We are, and I know specifically in, in our church and even your pastor, pointing at myself, we can wrestle, we can feel such grief and pain when we sin. And I know that of you. I feel that. There is a sensitivity when I mess up. When I do something, when I, I don't parent my kids lovingly, when I, when I am proud or whatever it might be, I, that's why I am so grateful for our moment of confession and grace. But I am so grateful that he knows our heart. He knows Oh, what I think of is Peter. Peter, the one who denied Jesus three times. And yet what, is, what does Jesus do when he comes and sees Peter? Peter, do you love me? Jesus, you know I love you. Peter, do you love me? Jesus, you know I love you. And you know I messed up. You know know it, but you know I love you. Jesus, Peter, do you love me? And I love this. He says, Jesus, you know everything. You know everything. You know my failures. You know what I did. And you know that I do genuinely love you. The fact that Jesus knows us, Is incredibly comforting. I have found much comfort in that truth, that Jesus, you know I genuinely do love you, and I'm so glad. My own heart wants to condemn me, and I'm so glad that you know what's true. So it's comforting, and I think it should be comforting to many of you. At the same time, it is it is piercing. It is convicting. No one can fool Jesus. Nobody fools Jesus. You can do the, the, the best things. You can go and feed the hungry. You can do all sorts of things. But if you hate God, he knows. There's no fooling him. So it's both comforting and it's incredibly convicting, isn't it? And we see that here. In the midst of Jesus teaching in the temple, the scribes and Pharisees bring a woman to Jesus who had allegedly been caught in the act of adultery. The scribes were basically supposed to be the experts of the law. And anytime time they show up in the Gospels, it typically, here's what typically is happening. They are then trying to trap Jesus. That is what typically is happening. These experts of the law, anytime you see them show up in the Gospels, they're trying to trap Jesus. And that's what's happening here. They bring this woman to Jesus. They present her and say, The law says we are supposed to stone such a woman. So what do you say, Jesus? Jesus knows what they're up to, their their hidden motives, and how they intend to use the law for their own sinful desires. We're told in verse 6 exactly what their motives are. They said this to test Him, that they might have some charge to bring against Him. Their hope is this, that either Jesus who up to this point has expressed grace and mercy towards the wayward of the world, towards tax collectors and Samaritans, including already a wayward woman in John chapter 4. That if Jesus denies stoning her, then He has broken the law of Moses. And He now would be guilty and could be charged with being a lawless man. So that's one hope of theirs. Or, if He does pronounce this woman guilty and begin stoning her. Well, during this time, the Romans were ruling over the land and they were in charge of capital punishment. And so Jesus could now be charged with, with undermining the rule of the Romans and as a lawless man be considered in front of the Roman rule. And so either way, they're saying, oh, it's a catch-22 for Jesus. It's a trap. The perfect trick will bring this woman and present her before this man of mercy and grace, and see how he responds. It's the perfect trap for us to finally, we've already heard earlier in John, they intend to kill Jesus. These men who are supposed to be the godly men, they intend to kill Jesus. Their plan is to prove Jesus to be a lawless man. That's their plan. They are using God's word to trap an innocent man. That's what's happening. They could care less about this woman. They could care less about this lady who they've gone and plucked up and dragged before a crowd of people to the temple, making this big scene, throwing her up in front of everybody. Calling out her sin. They drag her in front of Jesus. They could care less about her life and her right standing before God. They want to use God's Word to harm. Who really are the lawless ones here? There is no true desire for justice in this. no sense of mercy and faithfulness. Just people using the word of God like a hammer to crush people. Church, I think, I, I love the family of churches we're a part of and I love the history even of beyond our family of churches of being reformed. But I've said this before and I'll say it again. I think sometimes there can be an aroma of this. We crush people with the word of God while caring less about who they are. Or we want to trap them with our arguments and pithy thoughts about doctrine. And we could care less about the sinner. I think we see it over and over again. We still see it this day. I saw it this weekend. You go through social media and you see it. We take the word of God like a hammer. We could care less about the eternal souls of people. Church, may we guard against this. The word is to be accompanied by the heart of God. Their hearts are not hidden from the light of Jesus. In Matthew 23, he says this about the scribes and Pharisees. This will be up on the screen. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy, and listen to what he says, and lawlessness. Who are the lawless ones here? Despite outward appearances, Jesus knows and is able to expose the reality of what's in our hearts, our motives, our intentions. There is no hiding in the darkness. From Jesus. And in response to these sinful men, we're told that Jesus bends down and with his finger writes something in the ground. We don't know what he wrote. Some people try to speculate what he wrote. We don't know what he wrote. But what is more important and what should grab our attention is that as we read that, there should be something else that is recalled to mind about God writing something with his finger. Exodus 31.18, we're told that the law The law itself was written by who? By the finger of God. The law itself is written by the finger of God. And now here is God Himself come to us in human flesh who is being questioned about the law in which He has provided, surrounded by lawless people, being accused of being a lawless man. And He takes His finger and begins to write in the ground and then addresses them with truth. Let Him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. He's not saying, because I think this passage is quoted... No one can tell me anything. You're all sinners, so don't plan on tell, calling me out on my sin. Right? Isn't that how we hear this quoted? Right? Yes, it is. We're all sinners. He who has the first stone, or first sin, you know, cast the first stone. No, no one can throw a stone. It's, it's not necessarily that. It's not exactly that that Jesus is, is addressing. Jesus is addressing the law that has been brought forth in this particular situation. And here's the truth of that law. These religious leaders weren't even following the law correctly. They themselves were acting sinfully in regards to this woman's situation. In Deuteronomy 22, which is, has the law contained in which these men were bringing and acting upon, actually says that the man and woman are to be brought. Both, It takes two to tango. The man and woman are supposed to be brought before this council. And faithful, faithful witnesses were to bring both of them and to ensure that witnesses weren't falsely accusing people, there were to be more than one witness. And to show that they really did witness this, they had to be the ones who cast the first stone. The witnesses had to be the ones to cast the first stone. On top of that, we already know that their intention is not for this woman. It's to entrap and kill an innocent Jesus. These are malicious witnesses. These are false witnesses. These, these men, God Himself speaks to that. About being a false witness. Exodus 23, if, if you pervert justice and you kill the innocent and righteous ones, He says, God Himself will turn to you as judge. And He says, I will not acquit you. He says, My judgment will move from them You And you will not escape. These men were no witnesses. They were false witnesses. They were accusers. And upon hearing Jesus' truth-saturated response, they walk away exposed to the light. And they flee the light. I think of John 1 verse 5. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Leaving the woman standing alone before Jesus, and we read the sweetest words of these verses, Jesus stood up and said to her woman, "Where, where are they? Has no one condemned you?" She said, "No one, Lord, notice. when you read your Bibles, notice those new, notice those little things. Notice when they came to Jesus, they said, "Teacher." And they're trying to entrap him. There are these false motives. Teacher. And here's this accused one at Jesus' feet. Lord. Lord. Notice those differences when you read your Bibles. Jesus says, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. The one who wrote the law himself was standing before her. If, if there was anyone who could have cast the first stone, who knows all of our sin, who, who could it have been? Jesus himself. The one who could have cast the first stone, this holy one, Jesus himself, the king of, Of the universe who who dwells in unapproachable light. Who knows all of us. Nothing is hidden from him. He could have cast the first stone. Yet the marvelous and radical truths of the gospel shine forth here. The radical and marvelous truths of the gospel is that, is that as the light of Christ shines, those that do not flee the light, but instead come to the light. Those who come to Jesus himself, he will not condemn. Isn't that the marvelous truth of the gospel, saints? All of us bring our sin. All of us are this woman. The accuser brings us and says, guilty. What are you going to do, God? Guilty. And what does Jesus do? forgiven those who come to me will not be condemned he says that is the marvelous radical wonderful joyful truth of the gospel that all those who take refuge in christ himself will not be turned away they will not know condemnation and how can that be how can that be oh because the one who wrote the law Had now come to fulfill the law for those who could never keep the law. Amen. Oh, I'm so glad. I am so glad. Don't we feel so helpless in keeping all the rules? Oh, my, I'm regularly aware of how I cannot do it, Lord. I can't do it. I've heard heard my daughter before, sometimes in my failure of parenting, sometimes I say, Love, we're we're telling you to do something, it's not hard. And I've heard one, my younger one, say at times, I can't do it. And I'm pierced with this truth. You're right. Left to yourself, you cannot do it. And it's true for each and every one of us left to ourselves, we cannot do it. But the wonderful truth of the gospel is that how could he have such grace and mercy upon us because the one who wrote the law now came to fulfill the law for those who could never Keep the law. Us. Oh. Oh my. He would perfectly. And obediently live the life. We could never live. And then die the sinner's death. That we deserved. Taking upon himself. On his cross. The condemnation that was my condemnation. Yet he took it upon himself. As if it was his. So that. For those who trust in him as their savior, his righteousness covers our lawlessness. Isn't that good news? Oh, my. Oh, I hope you hear. Oh, man. Oh, I don't know how I come across, man, but I am so glad. Oh, and I hope you are just glad, too. Oh, my. For those who come to Christ and put their trust in Christ, there is no condemnation. And doesn't that recall to us a verse or verses? Romans 8. It will be up on the screen. This passage illustrates wonderfully the truth of Romans 8. There, Romans 8, 1-4. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law, of the Spirit of life has set you free. In Christ Jesus, from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, us. And for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh. He lived perfectly and died the sinner's death. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. What? That's amazing. It might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Oh my. Oh my. Notice Jesus doesn't condemn her sin. I, I, I read as I was studying this passage, some people reject this, these verses because they feel like Jesus doesn't just let us go and live however we want. Well, you're right. He doesn't just let us do whatever we want. But that doesn't mean we don't reject we don't reject these verses. He Notice, he doesn't condemn her for her sin, but he doesn't allow her to continue to live comfortably in her sin either, does he? He says, go and sin no more. Meaning, you've been given so much grace and mercy. Don't go continue living in the same sin. How much you've been forgiven, how much love has been poured out upon you, don't go back into it there's a wonderful video Rob shared about this. We've actually, I think we've passed it back and forth several times where the sheep is stuck in a hole and the shepherd goes and is trying everything and he finally yanks this just big plump sheep out of the hole and the sheep just starts frolicking and running and immediately, five seconds later, it goes down to another hole and jumps in the hole and is stuck again. That is so us. That is so us. But I love this. He says, don't go back jumping into the hole. Don't go walking in the darkness again. Don't return to that filthy stream again. We talk about this often. I remember Pastor Rob has has defined these one time many months ago, but I think it's worth redefining. We don't ever want to move on from the gospel. We need to grow in greater depths of knowing and understanding and applying the gospel. So here, here it is. What is grace and what is mercy? What is it? What are those that we have received? Grace. If we could say it quickly. God's undeserved loving kindness. So Him giving us what we don't deserve. His love. His affection. His favor. His action for our good and His glory. We don't deserve any of it. His grace giving us what we don't deserve. His mercy withholding from us. Not giving us what we do deserve. We do deserve the wrath of God, but He withholds it. Or better yet, He withholds it from us and pours it out upon His Son. So that we can receive the mercy of God. Grace and mercy. So so now we continue to live in light of that grace and mercy, not returning back to that sin of darkness. It's Romans 6. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Basically, He's saying, hey, it's all grace. Do we just keep living in sin? No, no. No, we're grieved by our sin. We're sickened by it. We, we don't want to go back to it. And when we do do it, we confess it to him. And we keep going. All by his grace and mercy. Oh my. Oh my. The sermon, the time has gotten away. Point two. Jesus, the light that leads us out of darkness. We've already heard in the Gospel of John that everything has been written so that we would believe and have life in Jesus. And John has shown us a few illustrative ways for what believing in Jesus is like. Believing in Jesus is like coming to Jesus and eating of Jesus and finding the spiritual nourishment for our souls. Or believing in Jesus is like coming to an endless well of refreshing water and drinking to our soul's contentment. And now in verse 12, we see that believing in Jesus is like coming out of the darkness and following the brightest, most glorious, most beautiful light in all the universe. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Church, there are lots of false lights in this world. Things that seem to shine brightly. They capture our attention and eye and pull at our hearts, but they lead us into darkness. I think of, I'm a simple-minded pastor. I think think of something like New York's Times Square or Las Vegas, from what I know of Las Vegas. I think of places like that. There, There are lights everywhere. You could even say our river walk. There are just lights everywhere wanting your attention. They're put there purposely to get your attention, to be a brighter light in your life, to grab your eyes, to grab your heart, to grab your mind, to shine brightest so that you will come and follow them, wanting you to leave wherever you are, whatever you're doing, and to say, come, follow me. That's what these bright lights are in our lives. Follow me. That's the world we live in. These false lights shining brightly, appealing to our passions and pleasures, promising fulfillment and joy and security, on and on. But in reality, they are only leading to regret and greater spiritual bondage and darkness. Right? Lights that are false lights that lead you into the darkness. I think of, I think of what's called... It's the most horrific of beasts, the anglerfish. The anglerfish is this deep sea horrific looking fish. It is the most ugliest thing, but it hides in the darkness. And you know what it does? It has a light on the top of its head, just right up here and it just hangs out in the darkness. And you know what it does? It just shines that little light. Getting the attention and appealing to the hearts of unsuspecting little fish. And little creatures say, oh, look at that light. I want that light. And they come close to that light and do you know what happens? That anglerfish, look it up after church, is the most ugly, horrifying fish I've ever seen in my life. And it grabs a hold of them and consumes them. That is the false lights of this world. Appealing. Oh, look how beautiful that is. That will will satisfy me. That will fulfill me. I must get closer to that light and warm myself by that light. And then it... These false lights are everywhere in our lives. What? So the question for you: What are the false lights in your life? What are these false lights that promise joy outside of Jesus? What are these false lights that promise fulfillment outside of Jesus? What are these false Lights that say, come to me and you'll have the greatest joy for 30 minutes. And then you'll regret every bit of it. What are those lights that are appealing, come away from Jesus and come to me? They are false lights, friends. They're false lights, brothers and sisters. And we don't stop guarding against those false lights because they're always shining. They're always shining. But I praise God that there is a greater light. There is a greater light, the light of Jesus that shines brightly to lead us. The same way the Israelites were led out of darkness of their captivity from Egypt To the land of promise, by following the pillar of fire and cloud, we are led out of the captivity of sin and darkness as we look to Jesus, the true and better and brighter and more glorious and beautiful light of the world, and we follow that light. What did the Israelites have to do? That light was there, and the pillar of cloud led them, right? So what do we do? We trust ourselves to that. To that light. We stay close to that light. We follow that light. If the light goes here, we go there. If the light goes there, we go there. If we get away from that light, it gets cold. It gets cold and it gets hard to see. We stay close to the light. Right? The same way the Israelites were tasked to trust that pillar of fire as God leading them. We are to be with Christ Jesus himself. Where he goes, we go. And how does he lead us then? By his word and way. His word and way are to lead and direct our minds and hearts. The light of Jesus. I think of it like this. Man, I, I, I have to go quick. The light of Jesus. I, I, the, the other day I walked into my garage. And if you have a garage, this is the first house we've ever had like a garage garage. And, and I, I walk in and the light immediately comes on. And, and here's Here's the thing. The light of our garage, and in a greater way, the light of Christ is is both horrifically exposing and wonderfully illuminating. When I walk into my garage, it's pitch dark. Right, it's just you can't see a thing, and there's stuff piled up in our garage on one side. There's stuff there, and there's things you could trip on and get hurt on, and there's tools and there's all sorts of things, and so you're left groping. If if, if there's no light, you just can't see a thing. And not only that, but here's, here's the deal. When that light comes on, do you know what else is there? Little cockroaches that you didn't know were there. But, you're, but they're not revealed until the light reveals them. The light shines bright and there are the roaches. And what do they do? They hide from the light. The light is hero, horrifically exposing. They can't stand the light. They run from the light. They fear the light and they hide in the mess. The light is horrifically exposing as we've already seen in these religious leaders. But the light is also wonderfully, beautifully illuminating, isn't it? Without that light, you can never see. You can never get around. You would never know what's there in the darkness. And now you can walk freely and get to where you need to be. That's a simple illustration, but that's the kind that serve my soul and I hope they serve your soul too. Oh, when the light illumines Christ to us, we see him for who he truly is as the king of the universe who has come for us and given himself for the lawless ones. And we see him in all of his goodness and we say, I love you. I want to follow you. I need you. We follow the light. The true light of Jesus leads us into true life and out of the darkness of sin and death. And here's what I believe. Here's what I believe. There's a reason why we say on this sign here, proclaiming Christ for the joy of all people. Proclaiming Christ for the joy of all people. Because I believe that to follow the light of Christ, to leave these false lights, these false joys, is to then enter into the greatest joy, the greatest eternal joy, is only found in following Christ. That celebration at the Feast of Booze, the light ceremony that lasted all night, it was a celebration. You know, it's funny. We joke about, like, Baptists don't dance. The Jews danced. They were dancing all night until the sun came up. They were celebrating God in this light. And when the the day came, celebration was over. Precious saints, we anticipate a day where that joy will never end. It only grows and gets bigger. It's this never-ending feast of booths where we're welcomed to the table and the ceremony of light is unending. That's what's awaiting us in eternity. This eternal joy. The Old Testament prophet Isaiah was anticipating this, was looking to this. He says this in Isaiah 60. It'll be up on the screen. The sun shall be no more your light by day. Nor for brightness shall be the moon, or shall the moon give you light, but the Lord will be your everlasting light. And your God will be your glory. Your sun shall no more go down, your moon withdraw itself, for the Lord will be your everlasting light. And listen to this: and your days of mourning, your days of sorrow and sadness and hurt and pain and letdowns shall be ended. When we follow the light of Christ, He's leading us to an eternal joy. Isn't He? Oh my. Oh my. Sadly, many of these religious leaders and crowd that Jesus is talking to choose rejecting this light and continue to live in the darkness. Continue to walk in the darkness. Here's the outcome. Far, far greater than walking through a garage where you can't see and you, you might hurt yourself or better yet as a dad getting up in the middle of the night and you're walking and there's a well-placed Lego there for you to step on. There's all sorts of pain and hurt hidden in the darkness. right Far greater than those little things. Far greater than walking in, in, that, in that type of darkness. When we walk in the spiritual darkness, listen to the outcome. In verse 24, Jesus says, I told you, that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am He, so unless you believe that He is God incarnate, the King of your life, whom you are to bow down to and submit your life to and joyfully trust in Him as the sacrificing Savior by which you are saved from the condemnation of your lawlessness, unless you believe in Him to be those things, You will die in your sins, it says. Those who believe and follow Jesus will know no condemnation. And when their life ends, their true life and eternal joy begins. But those who reject Him and don't believe and follow, there is no hope for the forgiveness of their sins because they themselves are left to pay for all of their sin. And that's terrifying and heartbreaking. Different than bringing that woman before Jesus and saying, condemn. It should break our hearts for people who find themselves living in the muck and darkness of sin. They are left to pay for their sin's punishment. And they then will have the full, unrelenting, eternal, horrific punishment of God poured out upon them for their unbelief. J.C. Ryle, who actually has a commentary on the Gospel of John, which is so devotional and so wonderful and so good. I've quoted many much from it. He says this, unbelief bars the door in mercy's face and cuts off hope. Unbelief bars the door in mercy's face. It's slamming the door in mercy's face. Why would you want to slam the door in mercy's face? For Mercy, not getting what you deserve, you would slam the door in its face? Unbelief bars the door in mercy's face and cuts off hope immorality so listen the first 11 verses immorality slays its thousands it does but unbelief it's tens of thousands oh my. we're closing we're closing saints the best part this passage ends with Jesus pointing the crowd to the place where his true identity would be made known to them. The place where his glory would shine brightest. And do you know where it is? The cross. The cross. Jesus points them to the cross. The cross is the place he has chosen to make himself known to the world. Verse 28. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he. John's Gospel is pointing us there. That is the place of glory to John. Leading to the cross of Christ. At the cross is where He would make known to the watching world that He truly is the obedient Son of God. The triumphant King of glory and the Savior of His people. And as He's pierced and nailed to that cross, and darkness oh, darkness, thought, It triumphed over the light. His light of life in that moment would burst forth forever, shining brightly, piercing darkened hearts from generation to generation with His precious grace and mercy and truth. Amen? Oh my, oh my. His marvelous grace and wonderful mercy bringing us to life. As He's pierced on the cross, the light goes forth. 2 Corinthians 4.6, it's not up on the screen. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Oh, it's wonderful. Praise to His mercy and grace. If we have come to know Him, it is because He has shined His light of life upon our hearts. And how does this passage end? Verse 30. And as he was saying these things, many believed in him. Stand, stand. When we see him in all his mercy and grace, it leaves us with two responses. Two right responses. We follow him and we worship him. We praise. Let's pray.